Romans chapter 8, verse 29 and verse 30. And it reads this. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. I want to preach to you this morning on the title, Salvation Belongs to the Lord. Let's pray together and ask God for his help. Father, we do thank you, Lord, for this text, these two verses. We pray you would speak to us now through these words. Encourage us. Give us confidence in our salvation because we can say together that salvation belongs to the Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. By the way, if you could silence your phones. Something I've been meaning to say at the beginning of the service. Silence, better, better yet, turn them off, unless you need it for your Bible. Growing up, my neighbor's house was not much more than a shack. Half the floor was missing, half the floor had new plywood. Uh, he put in plywood, but he never, he never got to the rest of the floor, and so it dropped right down to the dirt. My neighbor, John, he had a problem with beginning something and never finishing it. His house had half the siding on it. He had a shed that was halfway cleaned out. He had a truck that was halfway fixed and working. But you know what? I think we all, if we're honest, have a problem with starting something and never really finishing it. You know, our, our dreams never quite pan out the way we planned them to be. We've probably started, if you're like me, and we're going to be honest, you've probably started in your life more things than you finished. Anybody? You don't have to raise your hand, right, but everybody just raised their hand. Proof is in the raising of the hands. You know, if you go into my house uh, and look around, you would see that in our bathroom upstairs, which we remodeled, uh, there is trim that literally stops halfway down the wall, and we never finished it. Uh, and we never painted the trim. And it's been what? 12 years? <laughs> we start some things, and we never finish. And then we wonder, why is it that we will be confident that we will make it to heaven? How is it that you can have confidence that this, this faith that you started, that you're, you're, you're doing it, you're here, you're going to church, you're trying to take it seriously, you're trying to read your Bible, you're trying to trust, you're trying to have faith. What makes you think that you're going to finish this? Especially as you think about the life that you really live. Like, if you're honest, it's not always the easiest to read your Bible every morning. You struggle in your prayer life. You talk about wanting to get people together for discipleship and you don't follow through on it. You know, you talk about getting uh, uh, um, accountability and then you keep it at a distance. And you know the temptations that you face. You know the temptations you face. How do you think that for the next five years you're going to maintain this faith? Why do you think that for the next 15 years you're going to maintain? Why do you think that in the next couple decades that you're going to somehow finish this race? Now that I've discouraged you, I want to encourage you. We get it all wrong. You never started your salvation. Your faith wasn't something that you began. You're not here because you mustered up enough ability to say, I'm going to change my life. Listen, God began your faith. Your salvation began as his idea, 
as his work. And if God began your salvation, then God is going to complete your salvation. It is all grace. From the beginning until the end, we can go home, amen, go in peace, right? That's the sermon right there. That's Romans 8, 29, and 30. Now, if you'd like, I could break it down a little bit further, all right? In Romans chapter 7, we're told that we still live in this flesh, and we want to follow the law. We don't even understand our mind because we so often rebel against God, even though we are wanting to, as Christians, do good. And we talked about how I think that applies to the Christian. But then we get to Romans 8, 1, and even though we're still, as mature Christians, even mature Christians, in Romans 7, we get to Romans 8, chapter 1, and he says that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Oh, well, how does that then not lead us then to a life of just freedom to sin? Well, we're, we're, there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus for the purpose of verse 4, so that we might please God, so that we might live. So in this realm, this new realm of no condemnation that we're brought into, we actually want to please God. Why? He goes on to the life of the Spirit. So while we kind of were trudging through Romans 7, Romans 8 has been this high, beautiful picture of what it looks like to live in the Spirit. The Spirit, he says, then, testifies to our spirit that we are children of God. Verse 16. We've been adopted into his family. That means then that we have this wonderful revealing that is eventually going to take place when the curtain drops and you are shown to be who you are. And that is a child of God. Yes, still struggling with the flesh. Yes, very much so imperfect. It's because the glory has yet to be revealed. And as we think about that glory, as we keep our hope on that glory, it helps us to get through the present sufferings of today. So that's what he continues through in Romans uh, chapter 8, verse 18. He says, the future glory is not even worth comparing uh, to the sufferings that we face today. And so we're hoping in that glory that will one day be revealed when Jesus returns and it actually helps us through the power of the Holy Spirit live today. And so then how do we get through all the ups and downs? How do we get through the challenges in the valleys, even our struggles with sin? Well, verse 28 then says, all of these things work together for good. For God's ultimate purpose, for those who are called according to His purpose. And now that we get into verse 29 and 30, what He shows us is the inner workings of salvation. He says, let me take you behind the scenes. Because see, another question comes up here. How do I know that all of what I've heard applies to me? Like, how, like if, if, I, if you're telling me that all things ultimately work out for good and this glory that is to come and the unveiling of the sons and daughters uh, to show the world the glory of his adopted children, that, that, that gets us through the suffering. I'm supposed to keep my eye on that glory to get through now. How do I know that that glory is mine? How do I know I'm going to make it, especially when I can't even finish the trim in my bathroom? How am I going to finish this thing? So that's what he shows us in verse 29 and 30. He says, let me, let me take you behind the scenes. And I want you to see the inner working of, of what God has done for you to give you assurance that you will be glorified. What we have in verse 29 is what I like to call the unbreakable chain of salvation. If you think of five links that get us from not saved to saved, all right, five chain links, and they are connected and unbreakable. 
Today, I just want to look at each one of these links. And back, way back, 2013, I preached a series, which I called The Unbreakable Chain, on these five links. So if you go on our website, you can find old sermons from me when I was a much younger man. And, uh, and, and I just go deep and deeper into each one of these, these links. But I'm going to give you an overview today. So the five links were predestined, or I'm sorry, we're, we're foreknown, we're predestined, we're called, we're justified, we're glorified. Those are the five links that get us from not saved to saved, all right? So let's take a look at it. Your salvation, first thought of, began, and will be finished by God himself. Because, why? Salvation belongs to God, the Lord. All right, number one, God foreknew the believer. God foreknew the believer. Somebody say foreknew. Foreknow means to know before. That's literally what it means, to know before. What is it in verse 29 that God foreknew? That's an important question. It says, for those whom he foreknew. Some people say, well, God looked through the tunnels of time and knew ahead of time who would have faith and who would not have faith, and those that he knew would have faith, a.k.a. he knew their faith, he, would, he, he determined that they would be the ones that would be saved. But the text doesn't tell us for those whose faith he foreknew. It, it actually says those whom he foreknew. Whom then? is the recipient of the foreknowledge of God. Whom is you? He knew you beforehand. Well, what does it mean that he knew you, Christian? What does it mean? Does it just simply mean that he knew all the facts of Dawn's sessions that Dawn would have, like a million children, and, and uh, do all of these great things for, for kids in Baltimore City? Like, is it just simply that he knows facts about you? No. Knowledge through the Old Testament is much more than just simply intellectual knowledge of what is to come or who is to come. Let me give you some examples. Genesis chapter 18, I have known, he says, Abraham. Well, God knew everybody intellectually, but he says, I knew, I know, I have known, I've pre-known Abraham that he might have the promise. He's connecting his foreknowledge with covenantal love. Another example, Amos chapter 3, verse 2. Israel is the only nation that he has known of all the nations on the earth. Well, God has known of all the nations. Lowercase k, K-N-O-W-N. God's known of all the nations, but it says Israel is the only one he has known. You see, it's, it's different than just simply intellectual knowledge. It's connected with his, his intimate desire from the very get-go to, to express his covenantal love to a people, to an individual. It's connected with his plan. Oh, we could also skip forward to the uh, New Testament, Acts chapter 2, verse 23. Jesus was delivered up according to the foreknowledge of God. Meaning, when Jesus was crucified, it was according to God's foreknowledge. According to his foreknowledge. Meaning his foreknowledge actually has something to do with God's sovereign plan. God didn't just know that Jesus was going to be crucified on the cross. But God foreknew that he would be crucified on the cross in that every single detail about the crucifixion was according to God's foreknowledge. It's connected with his plan, his purpose, his covenantal love. As we then apply that to us, what it means is this, is foreknowledge means that God foreloved you. He set his affections, his covenantal affections on you before your cells ever came together. 
before your mama ever met your daddy, God determined to love you in such a way that he would plan something for your life. This is, this is wild. This is a unique kind of knowledge. And this changes you. Listen, Jeremiah, let me give you another biblical example of this. So Jeremiah, you, you, we, we, we did a series in Jeremiah as well. Tough, tough life, right? Tough, tough ministry. Jeremiah was a guy who, who was called by God with, uh, to, to deliver a colossal message to a very cruel audience with catastrophic consequences, and the end was heartbreak. Nobody listened to him. They ended up being taken away into judgment. Jeremiah himself most likely died in exile, executed. His, listen, Jeremiah never knew that he would have a book named after him. You know, think about all that he did not know. He didn't know that we would today just look at his ministry and say, what a wonderful man of God. That he would persevere through such trials and tribulation and continue to cling on to the, to the message that God gave him. Why did Jeremiah have this kind of perseverance? Well, Jeremiah himself begins to answer that question with the fact that God foreknew him. So if you look at Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 6, he says, God, this is God's calling of Jeremiah. This is where Jeremiah goes. You know, I'm sure he, was, he thought of this all the time as he's going through it, and he's always going back to his calling, which we see in Jeremiah chapter 1. In verse 6, God says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Jeremiah. That's the kind of knowledge that we're talking about here in, in Romans chapter 8, verse 29. Salvation then, your salvation began not with your decision to trust in Jesus. Your salvation began before you were formed when God knew you, when God set his affections upon you. That's when your salvation began. It's his determination then to do something in you and through you for his glory. You see, when we talk about like eternal security and perseverance of the saints, which means that everybody who's a Christian is going to make it to the end, sometimes we use the, long, the wrong language. Maybe it would better be called God's determination to save. Why is that? Well, it's because every single person he foreknew, I'm getting ahead of myself, but they make it to glorification. He doesn't lose anybody in the process. There's nobody that he foreknew that he set his affection upon who, oh, they gave up on the faith and, they, and he lost them. No, your, your, listen, your eternal security, which is a orthodox doctrine cling to it your perseverance is based on the fact that god determined before you were born to save you that's huge isn't it all right you with me so far let's go to the second chain the second link rather in the chain predestination number two god pre destined every believer. Look at the text. For those whom he foreknew, every single one of them, he also, somebody say it, predestined for what purpose? To be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. Pre, what does it mean? Pre-destiny. It means that God, in his foreknowledge, as he begins to apply this foreknowledge to your life, he predetermines what your destiny 
is going to be, and your destiny is going to be that of being conformed to the image of Jesus so that Jesus might stand head and shoulders as preeminent among many brothers and sisters. That's, that's what predestination is all about. Your destiny. You know, a lot of people talk about destiny as like some sort of pinnacle of earthly accomplishment. You know, do I believe in destiny? Meaning like, am I going to find true love or am I going to accomplish something great in my career or do something great for the world? What is my destiny? Well, that's a very, I mean, we could talk about destiny in some of those ways, but that is a very, very low, minor view of destiny. You know, actually, Steve Jobs was right who said that, that uh, destiny uh, for all of us is to die. I'm trying to find my actual quote here and I lost it. But he said something to that effect. And if I find it, I'll read it to you. Here he says, death is the destination we all share. No one has ever escaped it. So no matter what you do, no matter how great, how many great things you can accomplish in this life, Steve Jobs is kind of right, and he's proof in the pudding, that we do all eventually die. However, let's go beyond that. Christian, is your ultimate destination the dirt? No. 1 Corinthians 15, there's resurrection, there's something that's going to come for the believers, for those who are in Christ. So everybody that God pre-loved, he predestined, he created a destiny for them. For what purpose? Well, it's to be conformed to the very image of Christ, to become like Jesus. This is, this is great. Not only are we promised that we will be with Jesus for all of eternity, but we will be like Jesus for all of eternity. That is our destiny. Now, people get uncomfortable with this because they don't like the word predestination. Predestined. People like to be able to choose their own destiny. They don't like the idea that that our ultimate responsibility is kind of, or our, 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 our responsibility is ours, our ultimate destiny is out of our hands. That salvation is not the Lord plus me. But I'm comfortable with the statement, salvation is of the Lord, period. Now, I just want to say I'm happy that it's not up to me to determine my own destiny. I'm happy that I was predestined because I don't think I would do a very good job. I could take you into my bathroom and show you how the trim is only halfway done, and you would say, Joel, you're not the right guy to determine your destiny. Leave that into the hands of God. <laughs> Imagine if your destiny, church, was up to you. You see, some people come along and they say, well, I don't believe in predestination. And I say, wait a second, what? I mean, first of all, it says it right here. We are predestined. And if you don't believe in predestination, you've got to explain what you think this verse means. But what they mean is, is I don't, I'm not comfortable with the fact that God is ultimately sovereign over who is saved. And saints, I would just put it like this. If God does not have total sovereignty over who was saved, none of us, none of us would be saved. None of us would choose God. None of us would come to God. We're saved because God orchestrated and appointed you unto salvation. And God's sovereignty is all throughout the Bible. So Matthew eleven twenty seven, for instance, Jesus himself says, all things have been handed over to me by the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son. And then he, check this out. He says, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal to him. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And it, unfortunately, we end up in debates about predestination and we miss the forest for the trees. You see, in simplest forms, this is telling us that we are predestined to become like Jesus. That's what, it, that's, that's what it's about. It's about your ultimate destiny not being determined by you, but being determined by God. 
And this is grace and mercy like you've never known. Listen, here's you. Struggling with sin every day. Regularly, constantly going back to the salt water of sin, hoping that it would satisfy and it doesn't. Here's you determining, I'm going to handle my setbacks better and I'm not going to lose it. And then that very day, you lose it. And you fail over and over and over. You determine to be a better friend to somebody. And you fail. That's you and I. Here's Jesus. Active obedience before God. He showed mercy to the lepers and to the prostitutes. Uh, He stood for truth among wolves. Listen, you will become like Jesus. That's what we're talking about here. God has predestined that you will actually become like Jesus. And that transformation has already began. And it will one day be complete as you are conformed to the image of His Son. Therefore, saints... Let not predestination cause concern. That's not the goal of the Bible. Predestination is to cause confidence in the believer and comfort in the believer. The kind of confidence, according to Psalm 107, verse 2, which allows the believer to say, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. That you as the believer are to actually say, I am redeemed. It's not a question mark. It's not a, I don't know if I'm going to make it. I think I, no. Let the redeemed of the Lord say, finish it for me. So, (laughs) come on, man. When I point at you, you got to at least give me the, let the redeemed of the Lord say, yes, say so. Say that you are redeemed redeemed. That's confidence. That's the, that's the intended goal here. Meaning, why is it that you think that you can be saved? How is it that I think I'll make it to the end? Is it because I think I can hang on? No. It's because I believe that he can hang on to me. I believe that God is determined to glorify his son through making me Look like Jesus. And that is confidence. Thirdly, third link in the chain. So those who he foreknew, he predestined. Those he he predestined. So everybody he predestined, he also called. Called. Now, this, this link is the moment in which God reaches down and interacts with the human heart. So what we've discussed so far is not something that we would necessarily have experienced. That's in God's determination. This third link is something we experience that is called being called. The calling. How do we, or how do the foreknown eventually become glorified? How do the predestined eventually make it to heaven? Well, this is where our, we experience the change. God calls us. He calls us. There's an illustration of this calling which goes like this. Imagine that there is a big group of people with blindfolds on. And they're all walking together toward a blazing fire, which is going to consume them and kill them. And as they're walking, you come along and you say, hey, um, you're walking toward a fire. You might want to stop, turn around. And they say, no, we're not. It's getting warmer, and it is 30 degrees in Baltimore today, and we're, we're heading to the beach. Can't you feel it? Do you want to be in that cold? Come with me. Calling is what happens when God takes off the blindfold and you see that you're heading into your death and you stop and you turn, or, turn away. What does it mean that God calls you? It means that he interacts with your eyesight. 
Not physically, but spiritually. He gives you the ability to see that you're a sinner heading to hell and that Jesus died for your sins, took hell on himself completely by his mercy, by his grace, and that you are to fall into his salvation, his forgiveness in order to be saved. Calling is the ability to believe. The old theological word here is effectual calling, which distinguishes this calling from the general calling that everybody gets to, receive, uh, uh, to be called to receive uh, salvation. However, we almost don't even have to use the differences because the Bible, every time the Bible talks about calling, is it's, it's an effectual kind of calling. It's the way the Bible defines the word. Meaning this call produces an effect. It, 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 in other words, it actually works. When God says, Jody, wake up, come to have faith, Bino, wake up, have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that that call wakes you up from the dead, transforms you, gives you the ability to believe, and you get out of the grave, and you follow him. That is this calling. No one that God calls then will not make it to the end. This is again how we know that this is a calling that works. Look at the text. Everybody he called, I'm again getting ahead of myself, but every single person he calls, he justifies every single one of them. And everybody he justifies, he glorifies. The call gets you to the end. All right? And it's something you, if you're a Christian, you've experienced this calling. Fourth link. Somebody say, justified. justified. God justified the believer. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might re, uh, uh, be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those who he called, he also justified every last one of them. Justified, meaning in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, God has made a way for a sinner to be declared right. In our justification, Jesus' blood completely forgives us. We're given Jesus' righteousness. We're declared to be right. We are then chargeless. Who can bring any charge against you? Nope. It's been declared. Who can bring any charge against it? Well, three prosecutors that are probably in your life. Number one, your past wants to condemn you. Your past wants to judge you. If you are a human being and you've got warm blood surging through your veins, you probably have a past that condemns you. Your, your future can work as a prosecutor against you. The fear that you will one day slip off, the fear that you won't make it, the fear that one day you will stand before God and he will say you didn't believe enough, you didn't believe strong enough, you didn't repent hard enough, your future can condemn you. Justified is good news because justified means that it is God's work, not mine. It doesn't say everybody who he calls, they justified themselves. God is still the subject. Everybody he calls, he justifies. He declares them to be right the moment they're saved. Though we all stumble in many ways, we are made right as God declares us to be right, and we are kept right forever by His grace. Thirdly, Satan, the devil, tries to pro prosecute you. He wants to bring condemnation against you. He is the deceiver. He is the finger pointer. 
Meaning Satan likes to trip you up and then point out that you tripped up. He's like that brother who tempted you to steal a candy bar and then he went and snitched to mom, told mom that you stole a candy bar. He loves to accuse. He loves to condemn. That's what he does. He loves to point out your failures and remind you that you are a sinner. Martin Luther. So when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve hell, tell him this. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made my satisfaction, made satisfaction on my behalf, and his name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and where he is, there I shall be also. Luther went on, Luther loved to like debate with the devil. He went on to say, look, when the devil tells you that you're a sinner and that you will be damned, he says, reply back in this way, no, for I fly to Christ who gave himself for my sins. In accusing me of being a damnable sinner, you are cutting your own throat, Satan. You are reminding me of God's fatherly goodness to me, that he so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. In calling me a sinner, Satan, you really comfort me above measure. Because Christ died for sinners. God has already made a decision on your behalf. And though you're still a sinner, God has declared you righteous because of Christ. You see, if anybody could lose their salvation, we'd all lose our salvation. But the same grace that saved you is the same grace that will keep you until the end. Fifth and final link, glorification. God glorified the believer. Let me read the two verses once again. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might, reveal, uh, might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Glorification. Now let's begin in this way, as we think about glorification. There is an element of glory in all of us because we are all made in the image of God. Part of God's common grace for humanity everywhere is that they're, they're, they're in the image of God and therefore there is an element of glory in the human being. Have you ever heard the phrase, he's got a face only a mother can love? That might be better understood as he's got a face only a mother can recognize. Let me explain. Love is a strange thing, all right? When you think about your own kids, you love them with an intense love, right? If you, if you have kids. If you don't have kids, think about your brother, sister, parents. You love your kids with an intense kind of love. I hate to tell you this. Your kids are pretty regular. <laughs> all right? They've got regular faces. I mean, if you line them up in all, with all the kids in the world, they're somewhere in the middle. You know, maybe a little to the right, maybe a little to the left. There's kids that are more pretty, stronger, smarter. Love doesn't make any sense, you know? Man, why, why does that mother love that son with such an intense love? He has only a face a mother can love. Now, I, I, I want to suggest this. Love doesn't make sense, all right, to our flesh. Because love is like God. God is love. Love is of God. You see, love, when you set your affections on somebody, 
you see a glory in them that nobody else sees. I want to say this. Your kid is actually not ordinary. Your kid is extraordinary. But nobody else can see that in the way that you do. That's the beauty of love. It, you're, you're, you're not delusional in your love. You, you actually see true glory in another human being that is not recognized by others. Therefore, love is right and true and beautiful. Now, as we think then about this glory that we recognize and see in others, we want to see that person glorified. This is why parents are proud when their kids somehow get glorified in this life. You know, they graduated, they go to a wedding, they're, 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 they're in a wedding or whatever. It's like they, they, they're seeing the, their, their child for who they know them to actually be. Glorious, beautiful, wonderful. The problem with us is that because of sin, we are marred. And so therefore, because of the flesh that we're in, uh, our, our, our glory is broken, it's cracked. Yes, there's a there's an essence there that can be seen and cherished, but there's also this brokenness, this sin, this evil, this wickedness. God pre-loved you, set his affections on you. He then predestined that one day you would be completely conformed to the image of Jesus. In real time, God called you, and then he justified you, declared you right, and now what he's saying is that he's going to one day glorify you. Which means that this father has the plan, the determined plan to remove all the sin and corruption that diminishes your glory and to visually reveal who you now are in Jesus Christ as a new creation, to reveal that to yourself, to your family, and to the world. The dead in Christ will rise first. And those who are alive and remain will be caught together with them in the clouds. And they will be transformed in the twinkling of an eye. And we will, in our glorification, we will be given bodies that are more beautiful than anything you can imagine. Bodies that will be fit to never die. Bodies that will be fit to live in the presence of God. We will be given bodies, actual flesh and blood bodies that will be beautiful enough to be presented as the bride to Christ. That, glorif that, glorif that, 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 that much glorified, am I speaking good English now? We will be that glorified on that day. A wedding is actually a good analogy of this. Have you ever been to a wedding and you sit down and you, you know like the bride and the groom, they're like regular people that you know. And then you sit down at the wedding and you look at the groom and you're like, oh, wow, he looks pretty good. You know, he's got like a suit that's fitted and he's, his, his, he's all cleaned up. And then the bride comes down and she is glorified. She's wearing this beautiful dress. Her makeup is perfect. And you're like, I sit next to her in a cubicle every day and she is really regular. I never realized how beautiful she is. She, you're seeing her in her glory. That's a great picture of glorification. Now, here's the reality with human beings, all right? You're hanging out with the bride two years later, and he's got a, a beer belly now, and, you know, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, just wearing a T-shirt all the time. And like, there's, there's like, the, like, the glory has ever so diminished. <laughs> I don't say that to discourage you, I say that to encourage you. Well, in Revelation chapter 21, heaven, the eternal reality of heaven is described as a wedding day in which we are glorified in such a way that we are a bride beautifully dressed for our husband. And Jesus Christ comes to take us and that glory after 10,000 years will not be diminished. We will be glorified. Every one of you in Christ will be glorified. And I look forward to seeing each of you in that day. 
You know, as one practical application here, sometimes, you know, our, our church can be hard to love, right? But don't let the reality of who we are today fool you. Love each other in such a way that you'll be happy and proud of in 10,000 years when you see each other glorified. Don't let the ups and downs and the bumps and the bruises of our church services fool you. We are a glorified bunch. Oh, did you notice it's in the past tense? He says in the past tense that you are glorified. Why does he use the past tense here? Well, I believe it's because it's as good as done. 2 Corinthians 3.18 tells us that there is a current reality to this. Jesus, uh, as, as we gaze on Jesus, as we set our eyes on Jesus, it says we are transformed today from one degree of glory to another. So we are being glorified in the present, spiritually, not physically. But the majority of glorification talk in the New Testament is all future. So Colossians chapter 3 verse 4 tells us that when Christ appears, you will appear in glory. 1 John chapter 3 verse 2 says, what we will be, what we will be, has not yet appeared. And so, so our glorification is not in the past. It's not ultimately in the present. It's for the most part in the future. So why then, then does Paul use the language, those whom he justified, he glorified. I believe what he's saying is this, is in, in this unbreakable chain, it is as good as done. We are so confidently glorified that he can write about it in the past tense. The Spirit has adopted you. The Spirit has turned you into a new creature of which the glory is not yet seen, but one day that will be revealed. And salvation is of the Lord. Let me close with a story. During the California gold rush many years ago, there was a, a husband that went over to California from the East Coast to, uh, to find gold. And eventually he wrote to his family and said, it's time to come. So the mother and her son, his son, they, they got on a Pacific steamer and they started out a trek toward uh, where he was at. And while they were on the ship, a fire broke out. And rapidly spread throughout the ship. There was a powder magazine on board. And the captain knew that as soon as the fire hit the powder, the whole ship was going to explode and everybody was going to die. And so he quickly commanded that the lifeboats uh, be released and everybody get into lifeboats. The problem is that the lifeboats were too small. And they quickly filled up. The mother, still on the ship with her boy, looks down at the last lifeboat, and just before it pushes off, she pleads with them, please let us get in. Can you take two more? And they said, no, we have as many as we can hold. She continued to plead with them, and she said, would you just take one more? And they said, we'll take one. Now, would you believe me if I said that the mother left the boy on the ship and jumped in the lifeboat? No. Of course not. No, the, the mother picked up the, the boy and hugged him one last time and kissed him one last kiss and dropped him into the lifeboat. The boy's salvation was of the mother in her hands. Her idea, her work, her love, her sacrifice, her decision, her saving act. Salvation is of the Lord. Your salvation is of the Lord. It belongs to God. How is it that we can be confident that we will make it even though we're weak? It's because salvation belongs to the Lord. How is it that we can be confident that we're going to make it even though we struggle with doubt? It's because salvation belongs to the Lord. How is it that we can be confident that we're going to endure even though temptations are relentless against us? It's because salvation belongs to the Lord. 
Salvation belongs to the Lord, saints. This ought to make us celebrate. If salvation belongs to the Lord, let us praise Him. That's our response to this. Confidence and praise. And it leads us to holiness. His kindness produces holiness in our life. As we gaze on His grace and on His mercy, we live out a different kind of life, a life that is worthy of Christ, a life of praise for Christ. In His determination, He sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. We praise Him because in His determination to save, Jesus lived a life of perfection for us, Christ the righteous. He lived a life of suffering. In His determination to save, Christ went to the cross of Calvary. He was condemned by the authorities. He was abandoned by His friends. He was nailed to the tree. And as he hung on the tree, he drank every bit of what I deserve because he was determined to save. As he was determined to save, he was raised from the dead. As he was determined to save, he ascended to be with the Father and to rule and reign and work on our behalf. As he was determined to save, he sent us the Holy Spirit of God to regenerate us and convict us and point us to Christ. And through Christ's work, we are justified. And because He is determined to save, we will get home to glory. How will I make it? It's not because I am the author and finisher of my faith. He is the originator and sealer. He is the opener and the closer. He is the architect and the builder. He is the designer and the doer. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. He is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. So church, look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that salvation belongs to you. We just say we are thankful for the fact that you have saved us. God, we thank you for this great confidence that you have shown us in your word. That you are the one that began our salvation and you are the one who will finish our salvation. And may that lead us to praise, to love, and to holiness. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.